0: Welcome! You're listening to a sermon podcast from Oak Hills Church in Folsom, California.
1: Well, as Jordan said earlier, this is week two of our Artful Faith series. Manuel did a wonderful job last week of addressing the question of why art is important in our life with Jesus. I would encourage you to go back... And listen to it. It's, not, it, it's one of those things where when we think art, we think, oh, okay, well, that's not me, because I'm not an artist. I would urge you to go listen to what Manuel said. He basically laid the foundation that because God is a creative artist, his Im- and we are made in his image, we have that in us as well. Today, we're addressing the question, why emotion? Where do our feelings fit in this whole adventure of an artful Faith. What is the role of emotion in our life with Jesus? And I want to tell you before I get into this that this topic really, really matters to me. Or maybe I can put it this way I can get emotional about this topic. Because as I think back over my life, I realize that many of the choices that I've made, many of the attitudes that have solidified into my mind many of the relationships that I've had and the extent to which I've engaged in those relationships or held those relationships at bay, as I look back and think about my vulnerability over the years, all these things have been shaped and in some cases directed by underlying feelings like fear, anger, or hurt. So this topic really matters to me. It also matters to me because emotional immaturity runs rampant in the Christian community. Droves of people think regularly about spiritual maturity, as we call it, and all that's involved in that. But those same people sometimes don't think emotional maturity has anything to do with spiritual maturity. When we think about being a disciple of Jesus. You can almost do this. Just what comes to mind? What is a disciple of Jesus about? Where is that discipleship being played out? We think of things like our thought life, what we dwell on, what we fill our minds with. We may think of spiritual disciplines like prayer and reading our Bibles. We might think about honoring God with the various choices that we make, pursuing holiness and resisting temptation we might think about the quality of our key relationships how am i as a spouse a parent or a friend or a child but when we think of being a disciple of jesus it is less common maybe even rare to consider our emotional selves how is jesus transforming our feelings have we invited god's spirit into our emotional selves? Have we invited God's spirit, for example, into our anger? Have we poured out our fears to God in prayer? Have we ever talked to Jesus about our insecurities? Does anyone in our lives know our hurts? How we have experienced disappointment in our lives? Are we vulnerable with God? Are we vulnerable with others? We believe he loves us, but do we occasionally feel his love for us? Or how about this when we look around this room and we see friends or strangers, and perhaps while we're singing or praying or otherwise worshiping God, we see them reaching out to God. It's evident. That they're desiring God or we see them praying sometimes through tears or celebrating in a kind of unbridled joy. Does that affect us? Or are we kind of just oblivious to it? Is our faith stuck in the left side of our brain? Well, at least from my view, in terms of our spiritual lives, for some of us, It is as though our emotions just are. We live with them. We deal with them. But this aspect of our lives is not as open to the transforming and healing work of God's Spirit. And much of my passion for this topic comes clearly from my own personal experience with these things, but it also comes from the front lines of pastoral work for a long time. And here's kind of what I've gleaned. Some people don't know how to feel. They don't know what to do with their feelings. Many people are afraid of their feelings. They're afraid of what others will think of them if they knew their feelings. So they bury them. There are enough people who think talking about feelings is just unnecessary and even kind of silly Feelings are perceived to be basically weaknesses. And then there are those, and I'm sure one or two, no hands needed here, but there are those who are quick to dismiss all this as psychobabble. Which technically, if you break the words down, means soul babble. Inner world babble. As though there's no such thing as an inner world or a soul That gets complicated, twisted, torn up, or as if any serious reflection on these things is mere babble. So let's get personal for a second. Can you name the last time you felt God's love for you? And I ask not to stir up shame, I ask not to promote guilt. This isn't a test. Can you name the last time you felt, experienced, was moved by God's love for you? See, if I have a relationship with God, it seems now and then I'm going to feel God's love. God's pursuit of me. God's delight in me. And it's going to do something to me. It's going to move me. In some way. When I think of Julie. Or Izzy. Or Sam. Or Abby. Or Gus. At least occasionally. I'm emotionally moved. When I think of them. When I see them. When I'm with them. Their love and their place in my life. Occasionally. Gets to me. And similarly, it seems God's love for us, his amazing grace, his relentless goodness should get to us on occasion, move us in some way. And yet sometimes it seems like faith in God for some is void of this kind of emotion. So that faith in God is more like an agreement than a relationship. I don't know about you, but generally I am not Emotionally moved by the apartment lease I sign. When is the last time we felt love for God and felt his love for us? Does being God's beloved daughter or God's beloved son move us now and then? And if so, how is that emotion expressed? What do we do with that? I know it's not Father's Day yet, but I decided to go ahead and challenge, maybe even offend men today. I think men are too easy on themselves when it comes to their emotional vulnerability before God and their children and their spouse and their friends. We have a tendency to wall off our emotional self and justify the walling because we're guys. Let me just gently say, I don't buy it. Walling off our emotional self is a brokenness more than it is a trait of the male species. Or to put it really simply, it's a cop-out. In a book called Emotionally Healthy Spirituality, the writer Peter Schizero writes, Christian spirituality without an integration of emotional health can be deadly to yourself, your relationship with God, And the people around you. And Karen, if you could just leave that there for a second. Just so those who may want to take another look at it. In other words, what he's saying is the Christian faith without emotional health is toxic. Faith without an underlying emotional maturity inflicts damage on ourselves. And in particular, it inflicts damage on those around us. So faith, the Bible... Even holiness become weapons when feeling, connection, relationship are pulled out of the equation. Now, we could dive deep into this topic for several weeks and spend a long time here talking about this. But in the few minutes I have today, I want us just to think about and I want us to consider why emotions matter in the quest for an artful faith. One reason is because God himself feels. The Jewish scholar, his name was Abraham Heschel, wrote of God, and it's on the screen as well, saying, He does not simply command and expect obedience. He is also moved and affected by what happens in the world and reacts accordingly. Events in human actions arouse in him joy or sorrow pleasure or wrath man's deeds may move him affect him grieve him or on the other hand gladden and please him the God who speaks truth the God who reigns over all the God who will bring history to its fulfillment and is right now in the process of doing so and the God who feels In Genesis chapter 6, God sees the wickedness of the human race. And verse 6 of chapter 6 says, The Lord regretted that he had made human beings on the earth and his heart was deeply troubled. In Exodus 32, the Israelites build a golden calf idol, and they worship it, and they party around it. And in verses 9 and 10, God is talking to Moses, and he says, I've seen these people, and they are a stiff-necked people. Now leave me alone, that my anger may burn against them. In John chapter 2, Jesus is at a wedding reception, and they run out of wine. So he turns jars of water into really good High end. Lock it in the special cabinet. Wine. Now, let your imagination go a little bit. Let the right side of your brain work a little. I can't conceive of him doing this without smiling, without enjoying. Hey, let me handle this. Without feeling something about the bride, the groom, the family, and entering into that with his emotion moved in John 11 he arrives at the home of his friends mary and martha and he hears the wails of those who are grieving their brother lazarus's death and john writes these two words jesus wept when he was in the synagogue on the sabbath ready to heal a guy who had a withered and unusable hand for who knows how many years And the religious leaders step back and they realize he's going to heal them on the Sabbath day. Can't believe he's going to do that. That's against the rules. It's against the law. You can't do that. And Mark 3 says Jesus looked around at them in anger and deeply distressed. In Matthew 9, Jesus looks back and he sees the crowds following him. And Matthew 9 says he had compassion on them. Because they were harassed and helpless like sheep. Without a shepherd. When Jesus reached the outskirts of Jerusalem. Near the end of his life. Luke tells us. He came up to the hill. He looked out over the city. And he felt everything that could have been. And he felt everything that now would be. And Luke says he wept. As he stood there and looked at the city. God feels. He's not a distant and detached being, off in some far corner of the universe. He's moved by human suffering. He's moved by injustice. He's moved by oppression. He's moved by sin. And as Manuel taught us last week, God also delights. He is a joyous being. One writer referred to him as the most joyous being in the universe. After his creative week, Recorded in Genesis, he looked over all of his creation and he saw all that he had made, and all that he had made was very good. God feels. So, with that, would you stand for our scripture reading? It comes from the, in my mind, most interesting, bizarre, hard to explain chapter in the entire Bible Psalm 88. You won't be doing your devotions out of here. (laughs) Psalm 88, I'm going to read until I can't read anymore. It's on page 590 if you want to follow. Lord, you are the God who saves me. Day and night I cry to you. May my prayer come before you. Turn your ear to my cry i 'm overwhelmed with troubles, and my life draws near to death i 'm counted among those who go down to the pit i 'm like one without strength. I, if I, I am set apart with the dead, like the slain who lie in the grave, whom you remember no more, who are cut off from your care you 've put me in the lowest pit in the darkest depths. Your wrath lies heavily on me. You have overwhelmed me with all your waves. You have taken from me my closest friends and have made me repulsive to them. I am confined and cannot escape. My eyes are dim with grief. I call to you, Lord, every day. I spread out my hands to you. Do you show wonders to the dead? Do their spirits rise up and praise you? Is your love declared in the grave, your faithfulness and destruction? Are your wonders known in the place of darkness or your righteous deeds in the land of oblivion? But I cry to you for help, Lord. In the morning, my prayer comes comes before you. Why, Lord, do you reject me and hide your face from me? From my youth I have suffered and been close to death. I've borne your terrors and am in despair. Your wrath has swept over me. Your terrors have destroyed me. All day long they surround me like a flood. You've taken from me friend and neighbor. Darkness is my closest friend. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. It's a unique chapter in all of the book of Psalms. And really in all of the Bible. Because it is a remarkable example of a human being opening the valve in front of God. And letting whatever is in the pipe gush forth. In verses 1, 9, 13, and 14. The author, Haman the Ezraite is the guy who wrote this, or for our purposes today, get a little double meaning here. Let's call him He-Man because it's H-E-M-A-N. So He-Man in those verses cries out to God and pleads for God's intervention. His Lord, his Savior, come and see this and get involved. So this guy is oriented toward God. He's not just ranting and raving against bad luck or mother nature or some impersonal deity. He opens the valve and he pours out his raw emotion to God as though God is near and God hears and God actually cares. It's raw feeling. It's intense emotion. And you may have noticed there is no happy ending in this song. It does not resolve. The last line reads, darkness is my closest friend. Simon and Garfunkel maybe saw that. One theologian referred to this chapter as a wintry landscape of unrelieved bleakness. Pretty good description. And yet, in other places in the Bible, He-Man has a solid reputation as an artist a musician in King David's service, and, and this is the real grab, he has a reputation for being wise. He's known as someone wise. And, or perhaps because, he pours his guts out to God. I am reading this scratching my head, how did this make the cut and even get in the Bible? I mean, nobody puts Psalm 88 verses 6 through 9 up on their refrigerator. You've put me in the lowest pit. Your wrath lies heavily on me. You've overwhelmed me with all your waves. You've taken from me my closest friends and have made me repulsive to them. I'm confined and cannot escape. My eyes are dim with grief. Come on, kids, we're going to read the verse of the day today before we go off to school. I mean, lighten up, he man. Your kids are not going to come running up to you today after the sermon. And say, look at the cool verse Miss Amber gave us from Psalm 88. Why, Lord, do you reject me and hide your face from me? But I got to tell you, I love this psalm. And I love that it's in the Bible because it validates intense feeling. It validates the storm that is often brewing within us. That doesn't mean every feeling is based in reality or on reality, or that every feeling is based on truth. It doesn't mean that. It was probably not the case that God's wrath was heavily on He-Man since his youth. I mean, he wouldn't have survived that. But that's how he felt. And naming the feeling, getting in touch with the feeling, getting the feeling out, not fearing it, I would suggest, is essential to an artful faith and an artful life. And I get it. We may be rattling on this already. Left brain, right brain paradigm, left side brain, analytical, linear, calculated, logical, right side intuition, creative, imaginative, artistic. So we classify ourselves as more of a thinker, left we're more of a feeler, right? And sometimes when we classify ourselves, what we're saying is, I'm a thinker, so I don't need to worry about that. I'm a feeler, so I don't need to worry about that. I would suggest to you that in the journey of transformation, we are both thinkers and feelers, and God is seeking to develop those sides of us all together. So why is emotion so crucial? Well, here's the next reason. Because untreated feelings are as powerful as unrestrained feelings. We're made in God's image. So just as God feels, we feel. And feelings are powerful enough to pull the train of our lives if we let them. They can drive our choices, drive our reactions, drive our words drive our relational engagement. So let's talk about unrestrained feelings. There are some, Christian and not, whose unrestrained feelings are the engine that pull the train of their lives. They act on their feelings as though their feelings are an infallible guide to what is right, true, and good. So their feelings push and pull their will their choices here, there, and anywhere that feels good. Without much concern for what is actually good and right and true, according to God in his revealed way. The what's your truth movement, if we can call it that, is fueled by something like, hey, trust your feelings. They're reliable. So go wherever they take you. And if I weren't following Jesus, this would be my approach. Now, I'd like to think I am following Jesus, but still there are times when my raw, unrestrained feelings are the engine pulling the train of my life, and it's rarely, if ever, a good outcome. But it makes sense. If one isn't interested in following Jesus, then why not follow yourself? Good and right and true in this scheme are constantly moving targets, so do whatever pleases you. Be your own God. But for the follower of Jesus, just because it feels good, doesn't mean it is good. Good and right and true for the follower of Jesus are not moving targets. Which is why one writer said it well when he wrote, Feelings are good servants, but disastrous masters. Feelings are one of the cars on our, the train of our lives, we might say, but they are terrible train engines. God desires our good and invites us to follow him and experiencing flir- experience flourishing and wholeness. But his good and flourishing way is more substantial and thicker than simply doing what feels good to us. Those who are governed by unrestrained emotions then need to bring those emotions into the light of God's truth and wisdom. So those emotions can be refined, transformed. Transformed. And realigned with God's truth and way. Because some of our emotions are not rooted in reality. They're rooted in a distorted reality. Or put it this way. If feelings are the engine that pull our train, we need a new engine. Because feelings make bad engines. But as I mentioned earlier, my concern today is also for those of us for whom feelings aren't even one of the cars on our train. What I'm calling in this particular point, untreated feelings. We have them, feelings, but stuff them. We have feelings, but we're afraid of them. We have feelings, but we don't want to talk about them. We have feelings, but we hide them. We have them, but we minimize them because we're more of a thinker. We have untreated feelings rattling around in our inner world. And Jesus has not been given access to our emotions, and no one else has either. So our devotion to God involves thinking his thoughts, doing his will, being the kind of spouse or friend or parent or child he would desire us to be, having our character transformed. But our feelings, our emotions, are walled off over here in a separate and secure Warehouse and God doesn't have the keys, no one has the keys, we don't even have the keys. And here's the thing untreated feelings are as powerful as unrestrained feelings, they become the engine of our train. We just don't realize it. See, untreated feelings shape the culture of a home, a marriage, a friendship, a church an office untreated feelings convey loud messages especially to those who are close to us untreated feelings will drive us to keep the world and everyone in it at arm's length It's one of the signs that there are untreated feelings within is we keep the world at arm's length the people we love the most will be kept at arm's length. Untreated feelings will drive us to slowly and systematically build a wall of protection around us. Jill Taylor is a Harvard-trained brain scientist, so she knows left-brained thinking. Then she had a stroke that affected most of her left brain. So she had to learn to use her right brain. Then she wrote a book, and in the book she has this great phrase that is great advice, And probably the one thing you'll walk out of here with, at least I hope so, her phrase is step to the right. Meaning, step to the right side of your brain. Feel. Create. Artistic. Feel. Step to the right. It's based on the premise that many of us live in the left. So step to the right. See, emotions matter because they're an integral part of being human. And those of us who have untreated feelings need to step to the right and enter into those emotions. What does that mean? It means we name them. It means we do our best to understand them. It definitely means we feel them. I can't tell you how many times I've sat with somebody. Again, front lines, pastoral stuff and they'll tell me some story and i'll say do you recognize how painful that must have been and they'll say well everybody goes through stuff and all i can think is man i don't want you to live in that but if you're going to live you have to go through that you can't go around it step to the right so Lastly, the way of vulnerability as it relates to all this. Vulnerability for our purposes today is opening ourselves up. It's letting down our guard. And it runs in two directions. It runs vertically and it runs horizontally. It runs vertically in terms of vulnerability with God. And it runs horizontally in terms of vulnerability with others. Opening ourselves to God's spirit. Letting him in. Psalm 88 kind of stuff. Pouring out our inner world to him. Naming our pain. Naming our hurt. Naming our disappointment. Naming our shame. Naming our sin. Naming the heaviness. And this vulnerability goes horizontal, opening ourselves up to others. Letting a trusted few into our inner world taking the risk to name our emotions and trusting God's spirit to be at work as we do this with a trusted few. This is part of what it means to be a church, to be a community. This is part of what it means to do life together as a Christian community. So Jordan, why don't you come up? Jordan and I are gonna continue briefly the chat we started at the beginning. So we were sitting around the other day On Tuesday, when we typically talk about what we're going to do on Sunday and finalize it. And I asked Jordan a question, so I'm going to ask him again the same question. And the question I asked was, when you think in your life, whatever the genre, can you think of a song that grabs you, moves you, gets to your emotions?
0: Yeah, uh, just recently there was a song that I listened to called Life According to Rachel by Madison Cunningham, and... It just wrecked me. And it wrecked you why? Uh, Because it's about losing your grandma. And it brought me to... Reminded me of uh, when I lost mine um, quite a few years ago. I wasn't that close to her. She lived on the other side of the United States. And um, I wasn't able to go to the, the funeral. And I didn't really go through the grieving process with her. But then few months later, it all just came. So, uh, there's a lot of, uh, the picture that she paints in that song, just, I felt like I was there with her and it was my, they were my same emotions that I had. So, so you're going to sing it? Yeah, I'll sing it for you.